This is London Calling. You are listening to Thought and Leaders. Hello, 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 and welcome again to another global podcast that is Thought and Leaders. As you know, I scour this magnificent, beautiful, elegant planet of ours to find the most inspiring, the most intriguing, the most fascinating leaders out there. And this week, I am absolutely honored, actually, to have Dr. Florian Willett. Hello, Jonathan. Great of you to join me. Where are you right now? I am uh, approximately 150 meters away from the beautiful lake of Zürich in Switzerland. I can see it outside of my window here. I am hugely jealous. I have been to the UK, of course, more than once. And, uh, but it's true, I don't go there for the beautiful skies. Definitely not. No, because I understand that you went to Luton. Is that right? Ah, that's true. I have spent some while in Luton. As an undergraduate student. Commiserations. Yeah, yeah, it, it is an ugly place, that's true. <laughs> now, you were saying as a student you were there, and in fact, you are so incredibly talented. You have, and, and listeners, listen to this. He's got a Bachelor of Business Laws. He's a Master of Laws with special attention to economic analysis of law. He's a Master of Business Study. He has a PhD in evolutionary and behavioral economics, including lecturing uh, master students. He's also got a PhD in legal philosophy. And also he has a Master of Arts in communication psychology. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it should be okay. So I want to take you back, Florian, to 2002, and you're halfway through your first undergraduate degree when you come across a newspaper article about the psychologist Kahneman. Hmm. And he had at the time just been awarded the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences as the first, no less, non-economist in history. Now, what happens next? I was studying law and I was very bothered and annoyed by it. The law or Kahneman? Studying the law was very boring. Actually, I figured out that I'm far too libertarian than studying those kind of rules that people have to obey. Oh. I was arguing with those uh, lawyers. I think in, in all their irrational explanations, there are all kinds of irrationalities. Yeah. Really. And um, also, uh, when I when I discussed with the economics professors, I told them the same. And it was then, of course, a kind of relief when I uh, figured out then the, all this uh, fantastic research that Daniel Kahneman did in the last century. What was it about Black Swan that got to you? There are mathematical logics that I understood from Nassim Taleb's work uh, that I could also apply on a human interaction. Uh, in uh, social, social environments. Well, I was already deeply uh, read into behavioral economics stuff. So I identified uh, around uh, 20 theories, concepts, and hypotheses um, that are a, a very good fundament um, to understand uh, human behavior. I put all this together in one um, manuscript, and that was actually then later on my PhD thesis. And there's a lot of game theory in it. It's quite mathematical. And it, it, it was inspired by Nassim Taleb. That's right. And it was eventually published into an amazing book called The Social Swan. You can find it on Amazon. I never uh, aimed to, uh, to uh, earn a living on it. <laughs> well, don't undersell yourself. The thing about the black swan that got to me, you know, you can look at all the formulae. You can plan for all sorts of things. But in the end of the day, what I got out of it was that gut feeling sometimes, in fact, most often, gut feeling is all you need. You don't need all this other stuff. Um, I would say intuition. There is a, a lot of research in cognitive science about uh, intuition. Intuition helps you if uh, you are in a very complex environment and there are too many informations at the same time that you could process all of them consciously. 
intuition works better than rational thinking. If you just have a three or four main ideas that you have to put together, uh, then you should, of course, rely on your own uh, rational thinking. Now, in your field of behavioral economics, it's a kind of a fusion, isn't it? It's a fusion of economics with behavioral biology and cognitive psychology. I, I guess both of us, we are sitting on chairs right now, even if I can, cannot see you, Jonathan, probably you're sitting on a chair and your chair is not, uh, is not alive. Huh? So you can describe your uh, chair with laws of physics, but not with laws of biology. Yeah. Biology needs always resources to survive. Yeah. As soon as you run out of resources, pretty soon probably you will die as an organism. Uh, as long as you're not a virus somewhere in the in the ice, uh, somewhere in Antarctica or so. Right. Actually, the science about how to acquire resources, how to keep access to them in the, in the long run, uh, how to save and store them, uh, and the whole flow of uh, resources through an organism and through uh, through a population, the whole science behind that is called economics. I would say. So economics is a part of biology. If you look at the brain, you can see all the different stages that it went through throughout biological evolution. There were all kinds of different environments. So there are very different modules in the brain. Sometimes you are rather intuitional. Sometimes you are rather rational. Sometimes you are very emotional and impulsive. Your brain can switch in all these kind of modes in, uh, in those different sequences along this path of uh, biological evolution, these different abilities were useful, of course. Financial economists were the first to really understand how useful it was, weren't they? Cognitive biases, they were very useful because as a, an investor, uh, you should definitely not rely on your intuition. Yeah. Then the marketing salesman came up and they understood that it's uh, actually rather useful to keep a potential customers in states of um, cognitive bias Yeah, if you want to sell products to them. Before we go to the marketing one, I find the whole of the um, area of cognitive bias absolutely fascinating. And if we look at the economists, and they always talk about if the shares were going up, you know, maybe it's going to be a good bet and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But there's a bias, I understand, which is called the availability bias. When people are facing decisions, it's not that they always take a lot of time to research and research and research to make sure that they did not oversee anything of relevance. So if it's in a too early stage, you are already too sure um, that you have all the relevant information, then you are under availability bias. Hmm. So people look at the fact that the available information is that the stock was going up, then they will act on that, but they're not looking at the whole picture. Is that right? I mean, nowadays, of course, uh, all these financial calculations, whether or not to buy uh, stocks, is done by computers in investment companies. Huh? There is less and less room for cognitive bias uh, really to have an impact on the decision makers. Hmm. Uh, of course, there is a lot of information. Yeah. That is relevant to the prospects of a stock. Mm. You should be very clear that you check the whole picture and the whole environment. And there is nothing that could totally surprise you. This brings me to marketing when you talk about AI, because I'm going to put this to you, Florian, that yeah. AI itself can be biased. Mm. As you know, in marketing, a lot of it in terms of theoretical stuff is talking about what was best practice. And so people look at what worked before, and that becomes best practice. Mm -hmm. When it comes to AI, where it's learning with machine learning, what people want, what people say, just because people say something, it doesn't mean that they believe something. I remember that you had an interesting talk uh, where you actually spoke a lot about this. Huh? So, um what people tell you is, of course, not necessarily what's inside of their mind. That's, that's true, of course. Yeah. AI is learning stuff, okay? It's learning what to say, learning how to respond, and all the rest of it. That is biased as well. It's getting the information from people who have their own biases. And if you get enough people who have the same kind of biases, 
then it's just going to reflect that. It's going to be kind of what happens in Twitter with a uh, echo chamber. Yes. If you learn only from previous experience, then of course you also apply in the future hidden mistakes that did not had an impact in the past, but could have an impact, of course, any time in the future. People suffer often of what you can call an outcome bias, yeah. which means um, in the beginning, before an event, you have probabilities. You know, ah, yes, yeah. When you play a roulette, sometimes number 15 comes, sometimes number 23 comes. To think that what happened in the past is, uh, is the right outcome, we should also prepare for that in the future, is, is of course a mistake. Is it like in a football match? You know, that some people they watch a football game, they will wear a what they would call a lucky cap because the last time they wore that lucky cap or the lucky hat their team won the game. And so from this point onward, from an outcome point of view, they say, okay, well, I'm always going to wear the hat because that means that my team will win the game. And that becomes a cognitive fallacy, doesn't it? That's pure superstition, of course. Huh? Uh -huh. I have another interesting bias for you. Go on. The survivorship bias. Yeah. You want to learn from your own uh, investment uh, mistakes from the past and you look at the stock market and you say, oh, what would happen to my fortune that I have right now if I had invested into solar energy five years ago? So you look at all the solar companies that you can find in the stock market and you calculate back five years and then you think, oh, I've missed a few hundred percent of missed wealth or money or however you want to call it. The mistake that you make here is that probably 90% of the companies that were there for you as options to invest five years ago, probably they don't exist anymore. So, so yeah. in reality, yeah, yeah. 90% of your money would just have gone uh, into a deep black hole. Um, it would just not be there anymore. So, uh, you needed to be very lucky that the remaining 10% made uh, 100% since then so that you at least have back uh, your investments. Ah, yeah. I think a lot of people get confused, and it is confusing, actually, the difference between hindsight bias, which some people call the I knew it all along bias, mm -hmm. and availability bias. So it's it's definitely not the same. In the hindsight bias, afterwards or uh, exposed of an event, you overestimate your abilities to have it seen right from the start correctly. Huh? Okay. So what you just said, I knew it all along. Yeah, exactly. I knew it all along bias. Yeah, yeah. You have too much self-esteem. Yeah. There you can see, Jonathan, that all these... Uh, Cognitive biases that we have um, identified, they also overlap each other. Huh? Oh, they certainly do, yeah. 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 Um, there is, for example, the confirmation bias. Well, the most famous of all is confirmation bias. So you made a decision in the past. You took uh, two weeks of time to figure out which is the right car for you to buy. Mm. And after you bought it, you ignore arguments that tell you, well, maybe you made the wrong decisions. You only accept those uh, which enforce you to think you were right from the beginning. That's really a Twitter bias, isn't it? Yeah. Because they will, the people on Twitter, they will only look at stuff that confirms that they're right and they'll ignore everything else. It uh, overlaps a bit with um, what we know as groupthink, of course. Of course. You are in a group of people. Uh, you are probably a quite a homogeneous group. Yeah. Probably people are pretty similar to you. You tell them something and they already thought pretty much the same before. Mm. Now you give them the confirmation that they're right, you know. So you basically say anything that's just going to confirm that they're right all along. A lot of these biases have all got to do with one thing. The E, the ego, a bias that is basically saying, well, I'm right. One way or another, I was right on this. It's having the awareness uh, that um, uh, you are right most of the times while other people are wrong or they are more often wrong than you. Of course, that's a that fantastic boost for your self-esteem. And uh, having a strong self-esteem is, uh, is a very good feeling that we all enjoy. Of course, but it's delusional. Don't make assumptions because you might be wrong which, of course, has a go at the ego. Of course, if you are on Twitter, you should always try to question your uh, your own opinion by looking at the arguments of um, someone who, ha who has a completely different opinion. 
That's, of course, what scientists and engineers do. They always question their own work. Otherwise, uh, the, the airplane that you have taken last time from Luton Airport, if it had not been tested, yeah. this uh, airplane works, probably you had crashed. Let me come back to airplanes in just a second. Specialist speakers make your next event fascinating, authentic, entertaining, insightful, refreshingly honest, totally compelling. Contact specialistspeakers.com. There is a bias which I believe is called the publication bias. Have you come across that one? There are incentives, of course, for scientists to publish specific kinds of work which support already existing ideas. Probably you mean that one. If it has been published in some credible place, then we're going to pay much more attention to it. And that's the publication bias. Now, of course, not everything gets published all, all over the place, but it doesn't necessarily mean that this other stuff is completely wrong. So it seems to me that even scientists are biased. There are only few scientists who really uh, make it to get a professorship in the end. Huh? It's maybe um, you give other scientists the workshop and everyone gives a presentation confirming that they are right and you came to the same conclusion, of course. And then you get then you get under social pressure of within the scientific community. I want to talk to you about, uh, I think it's called survivorship bias. The very famous example of this was to do with planes coming back in World War II. They marked on the planes where the planes were hit by a machine gun fire and so on and so forth. And so they said, well, these are the parts of the plane that we should reinforce because we know where the machine gun is, is aimed at. But you take over the story from here because they were wrong, weren't they? The missing data is in the planes that did not come back. So actually they, they crashed, of course, because they were hit at their weakest point. And those who came back, they got their hits where they were the most stable. So uh, the improvement should be, uh, should be made, not where you see uh, the hits. That's right. And this is, goes back to what I was talking about before with the idea of best practice, because people say, well, this is where the hits were. We've identified it was across the wing and the body and so on and so forth. So everyone will start then making planes which are reinforced in those areas. But really, the bigger question to ask is, what about the planes that never came back? Where were they hit? And in nine times out of 10, it was discovered it was hit, of course, in the engine. All this other work that they did to reinforce these planes, the uh, wings and so on and so forth. What they really needed to do was look at the failures rather than the successes. And this is a key point with biases. I think we need to start paying more attention to failure rather than success. Cognitive resources are um, the crucial point in here. Um, at that time, England were, Great Britain, they were in a war with the Germany, and they were under time pressure. So they immediately needed to find solutions. Identifying the mistakes takes time, and time is a very important resource. We just say what worked, and we'll copy that. But the other problem with that, from a marketing point of view, if you start saying, well, this is the right way to do something, say how to produce a social media campaign, because this is what's worked with all these other people, The bigger problem with all of that is that all the social media campaigns will start looking the same. And people, consumers, they will look at it and they think, well, they won't think anything, actually, because it's all more wallpaper. So maybe best practice is not what people really understand best practice to be. There is this famous uh, quote by, uh, I think, by uh, Ford. 50% of the money that I spend on uh, advertisement um, is just money uh, thrown out of the window. But I don't know which, which 50%. Huh? Uh, the interesting thing about that, though, of what you just said there, it's not just a thing about Ford saying it, because there's another source that it came from a guy called Wanamaker. Uh, and there's another source that it came from somebody else. Now, here we have a bias actually happening in front of the uh, listener's ears. So you said uh -huh. that this came, and you said it with great conviction, mm -hmm. that the guy who said this thing was Ford. 
Yeah. But I can look it up and show you that it was somebody else. So what kind of a bias is this? If you're just given wrong information, if, if I tell you what, the, what is the time uh, in the street and you tell me, well, it's a quarter past uh, six, but instead it's already quarter past uh, seven, then it's just, it's just wrong information. Okay, so is this availability bias? Is it from the point of view that the available information that you had was that it was from Ford? And so therefore, what we were hearing there was availability bias in action. <sighs> Those cognitive biases are uh, rather something that happens very, very quickly. Your mind works uh, too fast for your consciousness. Uh, you just step into a trap. If the issue is not very important, like uh, probably what's the time right now in the afternoon, it, there is no need to really make deep research and to make a double check or a triple check whether uh, th this was uh, right or wrong. It's not a very fast but very important decision that I have to make. Mm. So I would I would not call it a, a availability bias, but um, we have a very similar phenomenon here, of course. It's just a wrong information. You relied on the wrong information that you were given. I'm not going to take you off the hook on this one yet because I think it's actually really important. I want to tell you a story. So a guy I know who's a mathematician, he came up with a mathematical formula that had to do with distribution, all right? Now, this guy was an absolute genius when it came to mathematics, and he came up with this formula that proved a theory that he had from a mathematical point of view in regards to distribution. He went around the world And he gave lectures, and he always included this formula. Now, he told me on the quiet that he had actually made up the formula and that from a mathematical point of view, although it was a very elegant formula, it actually didn't mean anything. But his formula was quoted everywhere as the definitive mathematical formula to do with this aspect of distribution. The reason I'm telling you this story, because that became truth, okay, is to do with COVID, with what was true, what is true, and you'll get a lot of people who say, well, this expert says that, and that expert says this. People just fall back again to these human biases in terms of which one they're going to believe, which one massages their ego the most. It's a very interesting Now that we have these uh, two years of experience to look back on this uh, whole pandemic crisis and uh, to analyze it from a behavioral point of view, that's for sure. We really should uh, distinguish enough uh, from a situation where you get fooled by your own brain uh, because it um, awards you with positive uh, emotions and lets you think that you figured out something. You feel certainty, uh, although you are totally wrong. Uh, you were just given wrong informations from supposed experts. Of course, we tend to believe authorities. Believing experts and authorities saves uh, resources. And that's what the, the brain always uh, likes and rewards you for. Now, not everybody is as highly educated as you are. They're going to just be regular guys who are going to listen to this expert who says the answer is A, and then that expert that says the answer is B, and then another expert that says the answer is actually H. It's missing something very important when it comes to propaganda, and that is to be consistent in your answers. So do you think that the governments have, have got this wrong in terms of getting the messages out there? Or is that just democracy for you and people can have their own opinion? Uh, once we face a completely new phenomena, such as COVID, we, we are in a globalized world where not only the virus goes uh, step by step around the world, but uh, even much more faster information about the virus goes all around the world. We never had this before. And then all the experts themselves, they are in, the, in a new situation, in a very, very complex world where they are looking for orientation. And probably those experts are uh, wrong very often, uh, listen to the right expert when you need an economist and to a medical doctor when you need a medical doctor of course he will be much more often right than a layperson but yeah, but he's not necessarily right though is he when you have a new phenomena in science what you usually do is um, you take all the research from all the experts in the field and you do a meta analysis you try to make an empirical pictures of the outcomes from the different uh, scientists so you're saying that statistically you'll go by 
um, who's got the greatest figure in terms of, well, 30% say he's right, but 70% say he's right. So therefore, we go with the 70%. Is that right? Well, um, um, if we have to act, if we have, we have to make decision, then of course the number of experts uh, could be of an indicator for you at least to tell you what to do. Yeah, you know, if you're under pressure, uh, under time pressure. Mm. Um, but of course, uh, the majority can can be uh, proven completely wrong afterwards. That's that's for sure. Governments around the world are trying to get people to take jabs, and um, from September, October this year, they're going to start telling us that not only must we be jabbed once, not only must we be jabbed twice, but we must have a third jab. Who knows what the hell is going to happen in January? Is it going to be the fourth, the fifth, the sixth? So getting people to do things, it reminds me of a little bit, from a psychological point of view, of nudge behavior. True. To make them feel that they're doing the right thing. Because otherwise, you're going to get a bias For example, there was a guy I was going to interview, right? At the very, very last second, I decided not to put him on air. And he's a very famous guy who was a conspiracy theorist. He basically said that the whole of COVID was a lie and that it was just the government trying to get us all to put microchips in us. Yeah. Now, I thought this was all complete twaddle and nonsense. But now I'm thinking maybe I should have allowed him on because maybe I was being biased towards the government saying, oh, we can't have anything that's going to go against groupthink. So was I then being suckered into some kind of a bias? Well, Jonathan, I enjoy it. People with eccentric uh, ideas and eccentric opinions because they inspire me. Uh, they give me material to question whether I'm right or maybe sometimes I'm wrong. And if I always listen to people who, who are similar, uh, homogeneous to me, then I always come to the same conclusion. And so I, I also speak with a lot of conspiracy uh, theorists. There is a lot of crazy stuff that you that you get to hear, but... If you go for lunch in the next cafe in your town, uh, you see all kinds of people having their lunch break uh, from work and they stick their heads together. So together they decide, oh, uh, this uh, colleague should tell him this and the other colleague should not know about that. And right. of course, tell our competitor this and let's make our competitor think, think that. Several times a day, we are part of a group. We are all part of Guy Fawkes' gunpowder plot. Uh. Yeah, permanently. <laughs> Now, an important message from our friends, the Jordan Legacy. This year, there has been a 40% increase in the number of adults thinking about harming themselves or feeling suicidal. Somewhere in the world, one person dies by suicide every 40 seconds. 75% of these will be men. During the past 12 months, 200 school children took their own lives. Most suicides are preventable. Will you support our mission to make deaths by suicide rare events? Discover more. Visit thejordanlegacy.com. There's something which is called nudge, isn't there? Being nudged is the opposite of making a uh, informed, a well-informed decision and giving informed consent. If you uh, do something uh, without even noticing that there is a reason uh, why you do it, and the reason is because somebody uh, prepared the setting for you in a way that it was just the easiest uh, thing for you to do without uh, thinking a lot about it, then you are nudged by this person. You don't really notice it. So the more we can get people not to think about what they're doing, uh -huh. yeah, that it, it just becomes instinctive sort of thing, Yeah, the, the more we can nudge them towards doing what we want them to do. It, yeah, of course. And uh, that's, of course, the opposite of what um, investors uh, do. They try uh, to, uh, to, to figure out about their own cognitive biases to avoid mistakes. If you are a, a malicious salesperson uh, who is not about uh, trying to find honestly the best deal for his customer, but if you are one of those people who just want to make a quick deal, or of course, if you are the government, you want to have people making a particular decision, keep them from 
thinking too much about it because the more they think about it, the more they make their own decision uh -huh. and the less they rely on the informations that you gave them to make a particular decision. Yeah. Are we making the world dumber then? Of course, we, we don't give each other always the whole information that we could give them. Yeah. That does not make the world dumber. Uh, I would rather say the other way around because those people who uh, managed not to be fooled by the malicious people, of course, are better off later on. Yeah. And uh, evolutionary theory tells us that those people have better chances to survive than other people. Um, and they even improved maybe their, uh, the intelligence of their species one generation later. Mm. It reminds me of a very famous uh, saying from Descartes, and you know the saying, which is, I think, therefore I am. Yeah. Now, I want you to really focus on that. I think, therefore, because I'm thinking, I am existing, right? I think, therefore, I am. You know, in 2021, uh, one of the big things that everyone's talking about is mindfulness. And the whole thing about mindfulness is not to allow yourself to be distracted by too many thoughts and just focus on the here and now. So really, maybe Descartes was wrong, that it wasn't I think, therefore I am, but it should be I have learned not to think and that's what makes me what I am because I'm able to be in the moment. Because so many people cannot do that anymore because they've got other people to do the thinking for them so that they can take a shortcut uh, to doing everything, as I called it, becoming dumber, maybe... Descartes would look at 2021 and think, wow, these people are just being led to think what other people want them to think. What do you think? Well, I don't, of course, I, I never met Descartes. You're not that old. <laughs> huh? Well, I don't know how clever Descartes is and how, uh, how, um, how able he is, of course, to, to change his opinion or also to agree uh, to be convinced by something uh, different. But I can tell you as uh, someone uh, who uh, read and researched about neuroeconomics, that Descartes is wrong. Neuroscientists would say, well, if you go into the cinema, um, you see a story there on the screen. The story is an illusion. It's just moving pictures. Uh, we can, uh, but with physics, we can tell you exactly what happened. Only because you see the story and you follow it, the story is not necessarily true. You're concentrating on the medium and not the message. The whole point of the movie is the story. Now, how you tell the story, whether it's going to be through light shining from a projector or whatever it might be, is actually almost irrelevant because the truth of the cinematic story is the story. Um, if you take your girlfriend down to the beach to watch uh, the sun going down, uh, it's not about astrology that you want to learn about. It's because uh, just because you want a beautiful picture uh, and have a kiss with your girlfriend. As a scientist, of course, I look at the technical uh, um, aspects. As a cognitive scientist, I, uh, I, I tell you that um, oh, there is a lot of opinion, at least, among uh, cognitive scientists that what you experience in your, your conscious experience is um, just a reflecting story from microbiological uh, uh, things happening in your brain. Right, yeah, but those things that are happening, surely they're based on your own experiences. Uh -huh. For example, uh, uh, there's a musician called Rufus Wainwright. I don't know if you've heard of Rufus Wainwright. No, no, no. Oh, you must look up Rufus Wainwright. Mm -hmm. I, I'm an absolute huge fan of Rufus Wainwright. He had a song which I think summarizes what you're saying quite elegantly. And that song is called Movies of Myself. Mm -hmm. He says, we go around this life making movies of ourselves. We'll look at a film and we'll say, how does it relate to us? At work, how does this relate to my business? As a consumer, how does it relate to whoever it is I want to buy it for? And all that stuff is based on our experience of what we either went through or hmm? wish we had gone through and so on and so forth. Are these cognitive biases just frames from movies that we make of ourselves, stories we tell ourselves? This question is very interesting. 
shut down your computer tonight and you boot it up again tomorrow morning. When the computer is switched off, of course, it's completely dead. Once you boot it up again, the computer has access to all the data that it's stored, uh, of course, on its drive. It's very similar to your brain. Of course, uh, the difference is your brain never really sleeps, even if you sleep. During your lifetime, you fill up your, your brain with data. At every point uh, in your life, you can look back at the past and compare the present with experience uh, from the past. Huh? You can tell yourself a story about who you are and what you did in life, which gives you a feeling of identity. Of course, you, you mainly remember emotions. There is this fantastic idea that if you speak to someone later on, he will maybe not remember the words you used, but he will remember what he felt at the moment when you told them. A lot of memory is emotional memory. And from your emotions that you remember uh, when you tell uh, friends about something that happened to you in the past, you remember the emotion. Mm. Each time you make up uh, the story anew, starting from, from the emotion that you remember. Yeah. People, if you show them a lot of photographs or something and then ask them to remember those photographs, they will remember the photographs more than if you would have just spoke to them. So it's all about what they see in the picture that evokes an emotion. Let me take you to Florida. Mm -hmm. Now, in Florida, they have uh, Disney World, I think. Was it Disneyland? I can't remember. <laughs> I've been to both, but I can't remember which one I went to. It's Disneyland. Disneyland, yeah. But anyway, they have Disneyland there. One of the problems they had in Disneyland was um, the queues, especially in the summer. It's like a nightmare. And so what they did, they distracted people. So while you're queuing up for the ride, you know, Mickey Mouse or whoever it is will come along and sing or play or whatever it might be that keeps people busy. And this reminds me of a story that I know you know, which happened in 2011 in Houston Airport, mm -hmm. where people were complaining that it took too long for the luggage to arrive when they came off the airplane. The walk from uh, the exit of the airplane to the baggage claim was just one minute. And um, the waiting time then for the luggage was another seven minutes. So uh, the, the luggage needed eight minutes in total to arrive from after opening the door of the airplane. Customers complained afterwards. It took so long and couldn't it be quicker? And of course, a company who cares about customer satisfaction, they thought about how could we improve our customer satisfaction. After a lot of trial and error, uh, they had this genius idea to make the walk longer from the airplane uh, to the baggage claim to seven minutes. Once people arrived there, they only had to wait for uh, another minute for their luggage. And afterwards, they were happy. Yeah, brilliant. Ingenious. Maybe what they should do, you know, <laughs> is <laughs> they should have on the seven-minute walk from the plane to collecting your luggage, maybe they should speak to Disney and get Donald Duck to come and entertain yeah. you. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Airports are a paradise for considerations about the perfect logistic and uh, efficiency. There is so much traffic. There are so many people and they all want to save time as much as possible. And um, so you can make a fortune if you go to the next airport and propose them your ideas. <laughs> you know what? I could talk to you for days and days and days. And now it's time to... Ask a behavioral economist. All right, what is a Fisherian runaway? It's, it's very similar to this idea of echo chains that occur um, in the process of evolution. If uh, there is a selection pressure on something very specific, it quickly becomes bigger and bigger and larger and larger. And maybe very soon it's, it's uh, bigger than what has been uh, the rest of the body before. <laughs> I lost you, sorry. <laughs> If we look at um, peacocks, there is a lot of uh, selection pressure, of course, on all kinds of characteristics and traits on this bird. You know, and the important is always what lets him reproduce uh, the best. And if there is one trait that gives him a huge advantage, of course, this trait uh, gets very, very quickly stronger and stronger and bigger and bigger and more and more impressive. It can lead up to this fantastic tail that this bird has, while the rest of his body uh, is there is always 
almost no evolutionary pressure, uh, selection pressure on it anymore because the other things are not uh, important. So it's a similar uh, like uh, like what happens in these uh, echo chambers. Uh, things go into a specific direction very fast, very strong, and all the other pathways that are possible are just left out. Mm -hmm. If your uh, son gets a third arm and this arm gives him a huge uh, selection advantage against his uh, opponents who are uh, trying to reproduce, in a few generations, uh, everybody will have a third arm and uh, the rest of the human body will maybe not have um, changed at all because uh, this one selection pressure was so dominant. I want to um, quote to you Charles Darwin. Yeah, yeah. From 1860. Yeah. And he said, are you ready for this? Yeah, yeah. He said, the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail makes me sick. They found that males with very few eye spots in their tail feathers, a measure of the size of the tail, were unattractive to females. But males with more spots than average had no advantage. And so even the father of evolution couldn't quite figure it out. Um, if we uh, talk about peacocks, the females, they look almost only at the tail. If you have a peacock who has 12 uh, eyes in his tail and the female figures out that the next peacock has 13, she will change uh, the male that she's, um, that she's reproducing with him. Oh, really? The number of those spots, not the size of the spots? Well, it's also the size. But Sorry, but Darwin said it, and, I, and I'll repeat what he said. Yep. The sight of a feather in a peacock's tail... Mm -hmm makes me sick. He said that. Hmm. He said that he found that males with a very few eye spots in their tail feathers, a measure of the size of the tail, were unattractive to females. Mm -hmm. However, but males with more spots than average, they actually had no advantage. So he's going against what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You see, there's an expert going against an expert. So which expert am I supposed to believe? If, if you have two experts uh, um, facing each other with different opinion, you should find a third expert uh, who has a third opinion. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Um, <laughs> if you find 100 experts and if uh, 80% of them tells you A, then you should, of course, uh, rely on A. It's a, it's a good bet that this might be true. All right. Here's another quick question. Believe it or not, that was a quick question. <laughs> that was a quick question. Okay, here's another one. What is a salami tactic? If you are a politician, if you have uh, bad news for the people, you apply a different strategy than if uh, you have good news for the people. You should give people bad news that you sooner or later have to tell them. You should give them all, all of them at the same time. And uh, with good news, you should give them slice by slice. So they are happy over a curse of uh, several weeks and months. Yeah. So obviously, Boris Johnson was never taught about salami tactics. Mm -hmm. He just kept on giving good news, good news, good news, which then turned out that there was some bad news. And then, you know, it got a complete confusion. And it's seriously, putting politics aside, it's actually a serious point that you're making here, you know, about how to convey the news, especially with COVID and who knows what next around the corner to people. If I make a survey with the people and I ask them, oh, imagine I'm a politician, I'm head of government, I will uh, confront you with this kind of news, uh, how angry would you be about me? Uh, rate it on a scale from zero to 10. And people would tell me, okay, 80. Uh, then I would ask them the next question, the next bad news. They would tell me, okay, 70. The next one, okay, 90. What I will do then is present you all of these uh, bad messages at the same time because you cannot be more angry than 100%. Yeah. These 80, 70, and 90%, they cannot add up to 250%. It's not possible. Uh -huh. uh, the other way around with good news, of course, I should, of course, make use uh, of this uh, positive effect that once sometimes I get 90% satisfaction from you, sometimes 70, and that's over a, over a whole while of, uh, of several weeks. So you have answered the age-old question. When people say, I've got good news and I've got bad news, what do you want to hear first? Yeah. Apparently, it should be the bad news first. Always depends, of course, on the kinds of... Uh, on the kinds of news that you have, of course. But um, there, we have presency effects and we have recency effects. So sometimes you remember the last thing that you've heard and sometimes you remember the first thing that you've heard. Mm. It, it really depends on the particular issue, whether the first one or the second effect. Ah, well, would that issue that it depends on goes back to my friend Rufus Wainwright with Movies of Myself, that people will remember the news, good or bad, according to how relevant that news was good or bad 
to their own experiences and to their own interests. Is that right? Of course, the stronger the emotions that you felt when you uh, made an experience, the better you remember the, the experience. That's for sure. Whether it was the, the first or the last information that you remember more really depends. If you run on a treadmill and you stop the treadmill when you are extremely exhausted by the pace, you will go home and you will keep in memory how exhausting this was. And uh, you, you don't want to go there again next week or three days later. If you slow down slowly, you keep in memory that at the end you were not that exhausted. And that is recency effect. Ah, Reciprocity, which of course I'm always talking about that from a marketing point of view, but you've come up with some which I haven't heard variations on it. Number one is negative reciprocity. What is that? Most people are reciprocal altruists. So you do me a favor, I do you a favor, and I'm very uh, angry if you do not cooperate and do not answer uh, my favor. So negative reciprocity is when you do something uh, evil to me and I will wait for the next opportunity and then do the same with you. So you do bad to me, I'll do bad to you. Of course, I remember and, and we'll wait for the, for the opportunity to revenge. Uh, you know, look back in history and that's how wars go. And, you know, there's a episode of Thought and Leaders, time this is, this is out, so I'll ask uh, listeners to go back to listen to an interview I did with the former uh, Undersecretary of State for Northern Ireland, Sir Richard Needham. And he said to me that in, in terms of these sorts of issues rather than saying, well, you did bad to me, so I'll do bad to you. Start off by saying everybody is right and then move on from there. Is there a way that negative reciprocity can be used post-war? Well, after a war has ended, people are still angry about each other. So the old grandpas, they tell horrible stories about uh, the enemy for another couple of years. This anger dies only when the people who remember, when they die. So right after the war, if you're lucky, you get into a, a period of um, economic prosperity because the abundance of, of resources, when this is available, it has a seductive effect. So the angry people get seduced if they at least are rich, if, if they have a lot to consume. Once they have then died, then the next generation, they don't feel the anger. They only know these stupid old questions from grandpa. You have to get over this period before another war starts. Ah. If you look at Yugoslavia, they had uh, their issues with each other every a, a couple of decades. So uh, before uh, the, the veterans uh, of uh, the last war have died, already the new war has started. That's why the, the anger always was kept alive. Uh, always a new reason is to start a new war because somebody was still angry. As a German soldier in the war, you meet an English guy, he does something evil to you. Uh, then you go home and you tell people, well, the English guys are evil. Although maybe this, this guy was just an asshole. Just the fact that he was English is uh, something that you project on the next English person that you meet. Because that's the availability bias. It's the only information that you had about him. He was a human being and he was English. Yeah, so the next uh, human being that you meet who is English, uh, of course, uh, you will think he's, he's, he's the same kind of character. And, of course, you will always uh, find uh, some English people somewhere. So whenever you meet them, uh, you always get reminded of the, the very first asshole. <laughs> you know? so, so whenever you think of an Englishman, you think of an asshole. <laughs> Very good. I love it. And that happens, of course, on, on all sides. You know, that's why on all sides there's, there's anger about each other. <laughs> what is indirect reciprocity? If uh, we are in a group of at least three people, mm -hmm. let's say Boris Johnson joins us here. I do a favor to Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson does a favor to you. Oh, yeah. Then you don't revenge positively to Boris Johnson. You remember that I initially uh, did him a favor and then you, uh, then you do me a favor and we are all happy. Get it. I get it. Brilliant. Okay, the final, final, final question. And I've got to ask it. <laughs> it says it. I think you know I'm not. I don't, okay, here we go. So I'm laughing. Okay, here we go. Why do <laughs> why do human males have shorter penises than orangutans, but longer ones than gorillas? What does this tell us about female fidelity? 
Mm -hmm. We remember from the peacocks that there was selection pressure on just having the most eyes in the tail. Among gorillas, there was not a big selection pressure on having the longest penis, but instead having the biggest muscles, because there is enormous aggressive competition among the males, and oh. the winner takes it all. Which means to reproduce, you don't need a longer penis than your opponent to get your sperm very deep in the female's body. No, you just need more muscles to discourage him from uh, trying to reproduce with her. You're the only one who puts uh, his penis inside her. Mm -hmm. But where does the orangutan come into all this? He has um, a very long penis, which means that probably the females have sex with a lot of males. And then there is a lot of competition, uh, which sperm is the fastest and um, uh, which sperm gets the quickest to where it has to get. And the size of the penis, of course, plays here a role because uh, the longer the penis the deeper inside of the female, uh, the, your, your sperm starts to run against the sperm from your competitor who will uh, have sex with her five minutes after you. Which means that, that we do not have really fidelity among uh, female orangutans. Uh, all the gorillas are very faithful. They have sex only with the strongest one. And humans are somewhere in between with their penises and with the fidelity of their women. It goes back to what we've been discussing in this program. The bias, preference, if you wish, is going to go back down to the same thing, which is what does this do for me in terms of enhancing uh, survival of the, of the species or whatever it might be? It does go down to that, does it? That's for sure. Well, it's been, to say the least, absolutely, completely, categorically fascinating Thank you for having me, uh, Jonathan. Now, if people want to get hold of you, how do they do that? Type in uh, socialswan.co.uk. Uh, they should uh, find um, at least my Twitter account. And um, they can, of course, also write me emails on florian at florianwillett.com. Brilliant. That's florian at florianwillett.com. So if you want to get one of the most interesting people out there to explain how biases can work in your favor and against your favor, then this guy is your man. So one last time, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Uh, Jonathan, it's reciprocal. Uh, the pleasure is on my side. Oh, fantastic. Okay, and so to everyone out there, I don't want to be biased about this, but I do recommend that you join us again soon. Thought and Leaders is a goodbye production. It is heard around the world, but we can't continue broadcasting without your support. If you are interested in sponsoring the show or are looking for award-winning content, including strategy and coaching, please DM us or email reinvent at me.com. That's reinvent at me.com.